Today we have a really great dreamland. What's it about? Well, hold on to your hat. First thing we're going to do is we're going to watch a two-and-a-half-minute trailer about a new documentary that is probably changing history. That's right. Changing history. Then we're going to be talking with Caroline Corey, who has been with us before for Superhuman. And this is going to be a super conversation about an amazing effort and an amazing breakthrough. What has made mankind is an insatiable curiosity. Insatiable. What is that? Nobody knows. The phenomenon. Nobody's ever done this as far as I know. It's a huge amount of work, a huge amount of data and equipment. That has never been done. Whatever this is, is more complex than we could ever imagine. This is a first in the field of ufology. The variety of devices we're bringing as a team to study the phenomenon covered an entire spectrum of different technologies in real time. That moment shook me to the core because I knew my life was about to change again. I think we're going to have like a couple of really, really good spots. When I hear that you've assembled a team of top scientists using state-of-the-art equipment, I say to myself, it's about time. This is an unidentified, unclassified new phenomenon. Wow. Tic Tacs. Basic. Navy Tic Tac. Navy. Caught on our cameras. Yep. That's incredible. Crazy. It isn't crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. We can go from body heat to very cold, like about minus 62 Celsius or minus 80 Fahrenheit. Wow. We will be transmitting data up to 800 terahertz in frequency. Our highest technology is up around 500 gigahertz. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to seeing what you've uncovered. We're triangulating and converging at two points, the same object. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. It's, gone. it's friggin' gone. Got something over Catalina. We need you up here. We could be heading towards the biggest see I told you so in history. That's what we need, the smoking gun that'll clinch it. That once and for all we'll settle the debate. No ifs, ands, or buts. And in the process, rewrite all of human history. Oh my god, you guys. Is this the wormhole? It's insane. This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. I'd like to welcome Caroline Corey back to Dreamland. She was with us in 2020 for an, a remarkable piece of work that a documentary superhuman 
now she's back with a knock your socks off, burn them, throw them away. You have no further socks. This is called a tear in the sky. It is the end of something and the beginning of something new, truly in this world. Before we go on, let us know where we get this. Hey, Whitley, so good to see you again. Good to see you too. Uh, Yes, we were just together also at the Conscious Life Expo, and I always enjoy you. Uh, So uh, people can just go to etereinthesky.com, and uh, they'll be able to get all the information there. Great. And, And you will want to do this very badly, folks. I... I'm telling you, I watched this last night, and I thought to myself, finally, finally, it's that important. Now you ask, why is he going on like this about this film? All right, let's kind of tell a story here. At some point before you even started this, you realize that there was something missing. What was missing in the UFO? Evidence. Data. Evidence. Real Data. evidence. Data. Yes. Exactly. And, uh, and more credibility because of the data, you know? So uh, that's, that's the big problem. Uh, and you've known William Shatner and Michio Kaku both make appearances in the film. And have wonderful things to say. I was surprised. William Shatner is a deep study in many respects. I mean, he comes across as, you know, Captain Kirk. And he was in that uh, that law comedy. I forgot what it was called. It was He was so, so good. He played uh, Denny Crane in it. And, uh, you know, he comes across as a, a relatively um, average sort of guy. I mean, you don't see huge depths there until he sits down with you. I thought it was a remarkable discussion that the two of you had. Yeah, it was fascinating because, you know, this film was a, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a scientific approach to the phenomenon. So we were trying to keep the conversation focused on science and validation and things like that. But he was more interested in the bigger story in the deeper questions the the mysteries we had amazing conversations uh you know in the green room before we started um he's genuinely uh into the adventure of life and unraveling these mysteries and so that's why when i would ask him a question he would not just try to answer okay just literally, you know, the science is showing us this or whatever, he would always take it to this bigger, deeper level. Um, so I really, really was very pleasantly surprised uh, discussing uh, that with him. Well, yeah, he took it to quite a deep level. And before we go on into what you have accomplished, which is, it's the single most, um, well, I don't know how to put it. They went out and they they did it. They did it. 
big time. And now tell, tell us a little bit about the, the, the team, the, uh, that you and the equipment let's just start with the team who were the people working on this with you so originally uh, like you saw in my previous films i wanted to include a scientific team uh, who would come out and do the investigation set up the investigation like how do we go even about it you know and so i wanted that uh and also just because the whole story started with the navy uh tic tacs as everybody knows you know a couple of last couple of years um i wanted to potentially include that a little bit but really the focus was on the scientists but as i started searching who are the scientists who are really open <laughs> to not just be commenting here and there, but really going out and, and doing the work. And so in my research, I stumbled on this group, actually, that started out with Kevin Day. Kevin Day was uh, is the radar operator who first uh, recorded and reported the Tic Tac video, the Navy Tic Tac video that leaked uh, in two, you know, a couple of years ago. And so uh, when I saw him, uh, we had a conversation and he said, Caroline, I uh, already have a team together and we already have a couple of scientists on board and we've been wanting to do this. And I said, oh, perfect. <laughs> so let's team up and uh, do this investigation together. And this is how the whole team came about. So yo go ahead. So it was a great balance of having the real people who were on the ship, USS Princeton, and the scientists that I was looking for. And also we ha they happened to have somebody on board who ended up being extraordinary who's David Mason because he had a huge amount of instruments and we're talking, you know, from the typical night vision goggles and all the way to like military grade, you know, cameras and, and instruments. So that was absolutely mind blowing to have that all packaged in one team. The uh, yeah, Kevin Day appeared on uh, Dreamland and uh on February the 4th of 2022. So he was with us recently. Now tell us a little bit about the equipment. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It must've been, it's a hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars worth of phenomenal equipment. Yes. It was about $650,000 because it was someone's, property. It wasn't brand new. Um, uh, and so that, that's uh, what I meant. Most of it, 99% of it was David Mason's. And so, of course, as we were setting up the, the, uh, the investigation, the expedition, uh, we had to have, you know, the typical cameras that people use, the night vision. But then we wanted to achieve, um, you know, a larger spectrum. So we had FLIR cameras, as you know, the night vision is maybe one to three microns and the, 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 uh, FLIRs are like 13 microns. So it's a, it's a whole range of, um, of, um, infrared 
spectrum. Also, we had spectrum analyzers uh, from that had different software and technology based on different technologies. We had magnetometers that were part of one system. We had radiation detectors. We had acoustic, the ability to pick up the acoustic patterns. We had radio frequency. I mean, we had everything and not just one of each. We had multiple, just the FLIR cameras, for example, uh, instead of having one camera, because, you know, the camera has one uh, field of view, you know. And so, so we had eight to literally cover the entire sky. This is unheard of. Where have you seen this setup before, right, Whitley? It's- no, I've never. It's, it's been a dream. Exactly. Um, and that's exactly the, the idea of this film is what we see right now, all the footage that's being released on YouTube. You know, people have one camera. Usually there's, uh, or sometimes there's multiple witnesses, but it's always one angle. Uh, the footage is not very clear. We don't know. You see, so even though it appears as an anomaly, but if you want to do a scientific analysis of that anomaly, you have to have uh, different devices, different correlations, you know, at the same time, time correlations across multiple instruments and devices, and also ultimately triangulation. You want to be able to see it from this perspective, but also from that other perspective at the same time. And so, so that's the reason why we had to set it up the way we did. Um, and we did it. <laughs> yeah, you sure did. I mean, the team is, it's an amazing group of people. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you mentioned in general, it's always just with one camera and like John Martin, who has been on Dreamland, uh, is he he shoots with a single camera, with a with a low light camera, and he gets a lot of anomalies. Uh, and uh, Melinda Leslie in Sedona takes tours out to see them. But again, it's a one camera deal. It's not a scientific effort. Tell us the importance, for example of triangulation, which you, you, in, you used? Well, it's very important because you can um, record the object from different angles at the same time. So it tells us a lot about its shape, its distance, its velocity, and which you can't necessarily do when you're looking at it from just this one angle, especially when you don't, don't have any other frame of reference. You know, it's just somewhere in the sky. And so that's the reason why triangulation is huge. And we had the opportunity to do different types of triangulation, which means that, uh, you, you know, you can have just two cameras within a mile away and that's triangulation, uh, even less if you, if you want to. But what we were able to do, we had that option, but we also had the option of doing it from, uh, the Laguna side and then from the Catalina side, you know, from way, you know, um, maybe 30 miles, uh, 30 miles, I think. Um, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Across. So, so, so it, it so it's, so uh, we had different options of triangulation, uh, to, and that's the reason why the problem with the footage that we see, which is incredible. I'm not judging. I'm just saying if we want to go to the next level, the next step, 
You know, we can't just, you know, study these, these um, objects just from one camera and one angle. It's just not enough to convince the scientists, to convince the world. That's the problem. And that's what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm trying to say, okay, I get it. You can argue this is this or this is CGI or this or that. But what do you have to say about all of these correlations, all of these instruments, all of these angles? You see, you can't argue that. Now, the, the where will this go in terms of science? Because what you've done is at a, a very f- high level of finish scientifically. Now, is this going to be uh, redone, or are there going to be papers written out of this, this this material? Were there any scientists involved who have access to the peer-reviewed press? Yes. Yeah, so, because we had very hardcore scientists on the team, these aren't scientists who quickly will buy into something without a very rigorous analysis. So. These guys, um, Matthews Shadagas and, uh, Kevin Knuth, uh, they are, they continue to investigate because we had hundreds of hours of data. Um, they're going to continue analyzing more and more the data that we have and additional data and publish a paper, um, with, for peer review, which also is unheard of. I think that's a first. I know it. It's just extraordinary because this is where we've needed to go. Yeah. And when did you decide to do this? And how how did that even come about? Because so many UFO people in the UFO field have assumed, oh, well, this is impossible. And you've done it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I, I, I really, I usually, when I look at something, I want to focus on the solution rather than where we're stuck, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I originally uh, was going to do the sequel of Superhuman because it had great success. People really needed this information uh, two years ago. And then all of a sudden, I just had this inspiration, <laughs> you know, it was like, no, do a UFO movie. And so the way you do films. And so it just came in. It was a little bit before Christmas, a couple of years ago. And by March, we had, as you know, in film, it takes a very long time to even be in pre-production to just lay out what is it that you're doing? Who's in it? Well, how do you go about it and get all sorts of permitting and locations? I mean, it takes a long time. And between uh, literally November, December and March, we had the whole team together, the whole plan together. Everything was just, you know, the, the, um, the instruments, you know, the devices, the scientists, everything was ready to go. And we went out and did it in July. It's it's like in terms of film production, it's also unheard of. I mean, it's especially that level of production. You saw yourself the quality. We had literally what like ten cameras going on every day because we yes. had we had um, cameras um, on the people, on the object, on what we were seeing, and we were in three locations at the same time. So we had to have the cameras different cameras so it was a big production to plan 
And yet it turned around so quickly. So I know it was somewhere, somehow divinely guided. There's no way I could have done it if it wasn't. You know, um, let's get back briefly to superhuman. uh, And uh, uh, can you tell us, just so the listeners who don't know about that movie can know what it was and is? Superhuman, again, takes on another paranormal (laughs) subject, which is the the subject of consciousness and the effect of intention, the effect of mind and consciousness over physical matter, the connection of the two together. And once again, we hear a lot about, yes, our thoughts affect our reality, our thoughts affect our stress level, so on and so forth. But in the film, I wanted to go the extra step and demonstrate how that is possible. So we set out to do multiple uh, experiments on camera uh, to demonstrate how, for example, remote viewing works, how how telekinesis works, how you can move an object, um, how uh, your thought pattern, your voice uh, has a specific frequency that affects uh, the geometry of your, you know, of energy field. So these, t- and also <laughs> ultimately we showed uh, how it was possible to reprogram the brain to be able to see completely blindfolded. Uh, people were ultimately able to see behind their heads, uh, you know, be able to do also maneuver all sorts of things completely blindfolded. So, so that's what that film was about. Uh, demonstrating live on camera the connection, the effect of consciousness um, over the physical world. Now, I want to go back even a step farther now to what motivates you, because these are two real serious, groundbreaking films. I, I uh, This one is particularly important i mean it's conceivably it's a historical document this film the terror in the sky it's that important what motivates you what did you when you started when you, when you first picked up a camera and thought maybe this is my life what when was that and what was that about Actually, it started a long time ago when I was a child. I would have these experiences spontaneously. Like I would see subtle energy. I would see beings. I would communicate. And so it was a very spontaneous thing that got me interested in the mechanics of consciousness of the mind. How is it possible that you could see things that nobody else could see? How is it possible that you can know of things before they happen and then it gets validated? How? So, so asking these questions since I was a kid and having validation. Okay. I can see what's on the other side of the wall. And then it, it is, or, or I know something and I hear it on the radio the next day, so on and so forth. So, so, so that whole subject was very, it was me. Like it wasn't something outside of me that I learned. And so because of that, it was very organic 
to continue exploring uh, all these fields that are all related, in my opinion, um, and having multiple types of experiences added to the kind of the impetus, you know, like the passion, you know, um, that this needs to be shared, especially working with hundreds of people from around the world doing regression therapy, you just sharing all sorts of information. Um, you go from, okay, I'm told probably crazy. I'm making this up to eventually saying, no, this is real. This is a hundred percent the truth. Consciousness is fundamental and we are um, inter entangled with the fabric of space time. Science doesn't know <laughs> how to explain it, but it doesn't mean it's not real. And so after teaching and facilitating for years and, you know, working with so many people, uh, eventually I was convinced to get that to the next level. It had to be in a different format. Not everybody wants to do a workshop or read books. So um, I started making the films because I wanted to reach more of the mainstream and bring that component uh, of the science to help with that. Uh, basically, in a nutshell, I feel like my life purpose in terms of film is to make the paranormal normal. Why did you? Now, let's get back to A Tear in the Sky. And, yeah, you know, I always say there is no supernatural. There is a natural world, some parts of which we understand and some parts of which we don't. So, and I, that's why one of the reasons I remember saying those very words when we had our discussion about, about your film, your previous film. But now let's talk a little bit about why was it that you went specifically to the area of Catalina Island. Yeah, so that was an, another important thing in the pre-production. We said, well, we know there are hot spots around the world. You know, we hear uh, about people capturing uh, UFOs in different areas. But so what it kind of, again, it organically kind of moved in that direction. The more uh, we worked with the team, with Kevin Day and Gary Voorhees, uh, we had three people from that ship, the USS Princeton, already on the team. And, uh, <clears throat> and so... As they were telling their story, I was like, wait, this is, this is the story, you know, uh, it, the way it should have that real life human component. And so the more I, I'm writing the story, right? So the more, um, you know, they're telling the story, the more I realize the investigation needs to be connected to the story. And then sure enough, and that what happened was in, in the Catalina channel and sure enough, other ships later on also had similar experiences. <clears throat> excuse me, similar experiences, the USS Omaha, the USS kid exactly in the same area. So that added to the kind of the conviction that let's go back to where these guys started out their story and see if we can make it happen again. So you basically, the idea was to go back to that particular place. Yes. 
you do know, I or perhaps you don't, that a lot of close encounter witnesses uh, believe that there is a an uh, a base underwater out there. Uh, you yes. do know about that. Yes. And, uh, uh, some of us live nearby for that reason because we're not we're not just guessing. And uh, uh, what do you think of that? I mean, did you do you think that you were you were observing craft coming in and out of an established base underwater somewhere? Yeah, definitely. I don't know. So, so I feel like it's a combination of things, you know, and people ask, what do you think it is? It's not one thing. Some of it I believe is human made still, and it has to do with the, as you know, the base in San Diego. Um, yeah, but the, 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 the Navy yeah. base. Yes. Right. Exactly. Um, but I also feel that, and, and this is more of the drone type objects that we see. Um, but I also feel that uh, some of the objects we have captured are definitely non-human. So it's not one thing that's happening in this area, which gets me to the next conclusion, so to speak. Uh, some of the objects were not a hundred percent. I mean, the things that you see there sometimes are uh, light, but then they change form uh they other than they behave strangely we of course they all do but the way that they morph into different shapes uh that's not human technology it's it's and it's not an atmospheric event again i'm coming at it from uh scientific analysis and things like that so i think it's a combination of both which still gets us to the question why there i believe um I don't know if I talked to you about that, uh, Whitley, but I believe that the fabric of space-time is is geometric. It's it's not random. Uh, just like the physical body is geometric and has specific points, and we have specific energy points and meridians that circulate the energy. Uh, we also have an energy field. We also have a brain. Everything is geometric and pattern. And so to me, the earth is also a living being and it is geometric. It's a sphere and therefore it's magnetic field. You know, if you want to call it the energy field of the planet is also uh, not random. It is geometric. And so I ultimately figured out the algorithm of that space, the, the patterning of space itself. And I find specific nodes the vertex points of this uh, this geometric pattern that seem to fall uh, basically it's the points where the magnetic field is kind of concentrated it's like a nod uh, a knot and so uh, it seems to be that these nodes these knots uh, is where um, we see the most activity and so whether they already have been identified by our government to do whatever military exercise and this and that is one thing, but I, I'm 100% sure that extraterrestrial technology is, doesn't function like we do. It's not linear. They understand the fabric of space-time and know how to use it. And so they're not going to traverse space, you know, in a linear way and spend 
hundreds of years to get here. It's ridiculous. They understand that these nodes are resonant basically with each other, coherent, so that you can simply, you know, um, move your vehicle, you know, your craft um, to these particular nodes instantaneously, bypassing time space. And so I believe that this is the type of technology they're using. And so um, that's why it ended up all being in those areas. And one of them is the Catalina Channel. Yes, and uh, there is, I, I will ask an author, there is a paper in the public space, but still privately held. In other words, the author hasn't published it yet, that goes into this in great detail. And it's the only one in the public space I know of that is correct. Mm. And um, I'll ask him if he can send it to you, if I can send it to you. I know you'd be f- very interested in it. Is it along the same line of the patterning of space-time? Yes, exactly. Oh. It's precisely what you were discussing. Oh my God! Is it a scientific paper? Uh, yes, I would. It's a. Um, he is a. I, I'm not sure of his title, but it's a very it's a very uh, well done paper. I mean, I've been looking for uh, evidence. I've I have other people who have have uh, kind of confirmed a similar type thing but, well, this but is not a, scientists i want sci- yeah this is a serious guy and i uh, would love that uh, uh, yeah and i'm i'm not not sure if it, i didn't expect you to ask for his cv but i understand why you did i i'm not sure of it and i'm not sure of the degree he's rather private about it is what i'm saying but i'll i'll see if the two of you can get in touch um now, the let's get back to what you found and accomplished, <laughs> because there are moments in that film that are really remarkable. When, uh, for example, the moment when the group of lights are in the cloud and they can be seen by one camera and another camera right beside it, isn't seeing them. Yes. You tell about that. That is just go wild. figure. <laughs> yeah. So is if that's not an anomaly, what is? The two cameras are functioning perfectly. Perfectly. I mean, you see, you know, and then we're observing an object and one camera, you could see it through the one camera, but you can't see it through the other. It's recording the exact same thing. How does that work? You see? There's, Don't ask me the question. Right? So so, so that's uh-huh. what I mean. And then this, the cameras, again, people who want to be skeptical, whatever. Again, we're doing this scientifically. We know the first thing we look at, camera glitch. I mean, come on. You know, we're not going to put out information just for the sake of it, you know. So the first thing we look at, is it a camera glitch? Is it this? Is it whatever? Is this, do we have control? You know, do we have this? Is the camera running before showing us something after so on and so forth? And that's why by the time we put it in the film, you know, it's, it is an anomaly. So it's a fascinating and important anomaly too, because it implies an exquisite ability to control our ability to detect. Yes. You see? And uh, you have to wonder what, how, where that comes from, 
And why was it demonstrated to you? Because we are looking here through our own eyes at the ideas of people or beings who come from another culture of some sort, whether it's another culture from another planet or where it's from, we don't know. I wonder why they would choose to do that. Because it, it's a done thing. It's not an accident, almost certainly. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a, it's a not on purpose. I think everything was on purpose. Even everything that we did capture was not the typical thing. Of course, we captured the typical orbs and things like that. But uh, I believe that uh, this film was made on purpose. I really don't think I did that on my own. And I'm not talking about the humans. <laughs> uh, I really think there was a purpose to give us a range of anomalies to, especially the last one in the film, uh, to, for us to really, really stop and think. And because, and I really think like what you said, this is historic because um, we are now bringing real credible scientists to to tell on board to tell us it's technically impossible. Two identical cameras side by side, and so so going back to your question, I think it's for us to really. They're using the film. That's my take on it. Okay, they're using the film. To because I am now reaching a different uh, audience in a way, right? By integrating the science, so so I think they're using the film to give us even more clues that yes. it's not about. Go ahead. They are communicating. That was a communication. That was see. We can do this. You exactly. figure that out. You figure exactly. out why we can do this and how we did it. Because, Caroline, there is a, a whole lot of science that can be done as long as we accept that that was real. In other words, that the two cameras were identical and that they were working properly. Therefore, what was we what was entering the two cameras one not anything and the other an image can we can learn from that i think you probably have on that film clues as to why the image would be visible in one camera and not in another but they're not going to be obvious clues they're going to be way down in the atomic structure of the image, way down that deep, I think, because there's something there that would be different from normal, or it would not be like that. Exactly. So I feel like, are they giving us clues 
on the technology that's possible. Or to me, what is more fascinating, are they giving us clues on how the universe works? In other words, that's very possible. And yeah, that could be like one how, of them. How, how exactly going back to the fabric of space time, right. that, you know, you could do certain things in certain points in space because it's naturally possible. I like to look at that angle as well, not just. Right. Oh, they're advanced. They have these crafts and da da da. I mean, of course, that's yeah, fascinating. Some, that's that's an old hat. Let's yeah. try it. I'm trying to have an interview at a new level too, to yes. try to really look into what is going on here exactly. and what kind of communication you received, because an anomaly like that stands out as a as a, as a an exclamation point. It says, "Look at this." Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. And then of course the, the last thing is even more mind blowing. I mean, we, there's a few, we want people to really watch the film to see how it all unfolds, but yeah. some of the other clues as well. For example, there is another object that appears out of nowhere, like <laughs> on the camera. And then, it, and then it's like, Flies for a few frames and then poop disappears. So that's okay. We've seen that before, but it had a shape. It was very, and it's like tilting. It's doing all that stuff. And then it's registering cold, cold, an object that, so it's not a, its surface was cold. Yes, it's cold. So if you're flying, you have a propulsion system. There's no way that's going to be cold. So it's a sort of technology that is not using our propulsion system. How are they doing that? How is that possible? And how does it appear and then just boop, disappear? There's no clouds. There's nothing. It's the same, you know. So, so all of these to me are fascinating clues. Fascinating. Especially when you start to correlate them with radiation, different angles, you know, now the conversation is interesting. Yeah, because you're you're beginning to be able to not only to see the objects, but to see something about them. Uh, one of them was unusually cold. Uh, were there? Were they all like that? No, 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 no. So uh, some of them were normal. They were just uh, having a different behavior, like they were zigzagging or doing things like that. Some of them were going against the wind, but they weren't cold necessarily. So it was a, that's what I was saying. Like it was a range. I feel like they, I feel like they gave us the samples. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> the thing that's interesting is that the, to me, the ones that stand out are the ones that are maybe the most important words in this, in the sentence that you, that they read to you in the sentence in the sky and that coldness of one of them. And I, I, to me, I would wonder where it came from, what direction it came from, how long it was there, how it disappeared, all of those things to try to understand why it, it was different from the others. And then we get into the matter of technology because uh, <laughs> energy generation, uh, a side effect of it is heat. And magnetic magnetism is also very often a side effect of UFO activity. They're, they're very, there's a high level of magnetism involved. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the various technologies that you used to measure optical and what else? I know you even used acoustic technologies. Yeah, and there the, there's the spectrum analyzers, so analyzing uh, also radio frequencies and magnetometers, so the magnetic uh, field of fluctuation um, and um, uh, radiation detection. So, uh, so there was that going on as well. And again, the range of the optical, like the different spectrum um, from the optical devices. So we had the CCD cameras, which is the normal camera. And then we had the, the night vision, the regular infrared, and then the FLIR. So that, so just optical, we had a whole range. Um, what, and what, what is FLIR? FLIR are the thermal cameras. Right. And uh, that basically, you know, the military use, you know, and so basically it's picking up uh, the, the, the heat signature of uh, the vehicle, of the, the object, uh, but at a whole wide range. I mean, like I said, the, the typical night vision is, um, I think, 1.3 or something like that. I hope I'm not making a mistake, but it's a very small infrared range so you're seeing in the infrared range and the FLIR is like 13 it's like it's like it's so you're going into the infrared visual spectrum uh with one of these cameras and we had eight of them so so that's this type of technology also most uh ufo investigators don't have that you know this type of equipment available and we did so it it was really extraordinary to have um, access to all of these and create and have correlations. Another very important thing uh, is we want to correlate what we see exactly at 929, um, this weird object doing this and that or whatever. At the same time, we have a radiation that is totally a spike that is totally unusual. So, so then that correlation becomes interesting because, um, was it caused by the object or is it a fluke? You know, you can always say it was a fluke. So the idea is then we go back to the radiation spike and study that. Okay. Maybe it was a solar flare. Maybe it was some sort of other. So we check, we check with other systems, you know, uh, there are other, uh, constantly uh, systems that are constantly monitoring space for radiation, for this, for that. And so none of it checks out. So why did we have that particular spike exactly at the same time that this object appears? If it's not this, it's not that, it's not NASA, you know? So, so then you, you see what I mean? Now we are starting to have clues uh, about the properties of these objects that they can not only appear, disappear, or do crazy stuff, but they also, you know, could be accompanied with massive radiation spikes. And I'm talking massive. I mean, the normal radiation on Earth is about 2 MeV or something, and this was like 30. It was 40. It's very, very unusual. It's like 1 in 10,000, 1 in 100,000. And and what exactly was generating it? What did it look like? It was a spike. Uh, what do you mean, the radiation? No, no, no. Uh, when you, what were you looking? Were you looking? I'm I'm confused as to whether you were uh, 
trained on an object when you got the radiation spike. I'm not quite sure where it came from. So it's different devices doing different things. Yeah, yeah that yeah. I know. But 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 what was happening around you when the radiation spike occurred? Around us physically, you mean? Yeah. Nothing. We were all looking, look, trying oh, so to. So the radiation spike just came out of nowhere then. Yeah, exactly. We were just ah. there. And all of a sudden, like we have a line, all of a sudden, doot, doot. You know, it's like, oh, what's going on here? And the system is analyzing, uh, you know, what it was detecting. So we, so we were just glued to what was happening. So some of us were observing the object, others were looking, <clears throat> excuse me, looking at the the spike, and and then we put our notes together. You mentioned in the in disca- describing the equipment in the film that some of it is old. Some of it is new. Some of it is is experimental. Now, and the basic older equipment would be the old night vision cameras and so forth. And what would be the new equipment? Yeah. So, so when, when I think Gary, sorry, uh, I, I think, I don't know how I turn everything off. I don't know how it still comes through. Um, so, um, I think Gary said that and um what what he meant by old doesn't mean like the equipment is old it means no, it's, no, it's just not old it's technology. not yeah yeah yeah, exactly. yeah yeah it's like it's like the rig, regular cameras right. that everybody right. uses um right. and your brand you know, new mix master is old yeah yeah exactly or, or right. the night vision i mean you can get that off the shelf you know so that's what he meant um the newer technology and he said some of it is cutting edge so uh, experimental and cutting edge. So uh, the the FLIR cameras that I was talking about is also, I mean, it's it's not new. You know, the military uses FLIR technology, but it's new for us, for ufology. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's totally new yeah. to have eight FLIR cameras that can detect infrared. So that is totally new. But the cutting edge stuff, what, and also some of the radiation detection that uh, Matthew Shadagas had, that was... Uh, done by MIT was designed by MIT to measure radiation in a new way. So that was kind of a new type of technology. And also uh, the things that David Mason had, the invention that he had, the, this is totally cutting edge. These are inventions and it's based on um, the idea that you can register, you can detect the light pattern around the that the object is emitting. So if you capture the frequency or you know the signature of that light pattern, he he created a technology as you're looking at it to transfer it into a sound. So basically you're hearing what you're seeing. Right. And, yeah. And and what's the point of that? First of all, it gives us clues. Oh, the light is this or that or whatever. But then with that sound, uh, sound wave, you can then also transfer it back. So, I mean, we could also transfer back the light, but he had it done this way and he had other things detecting the thermal signature of the object and transferring it back. So he had all this technology never seen before. These are inventions that, uh, we had that was very, very unique. It's very cutting edge. And it's certainly not used in ufology. So mm-hmm. that's why we had a big advantage um, uh, with some of the very cutting edge stuff in addition, 
you know, to the typical things. And what gave you, what did that advantage gain you? What did you get from the cutting edge stuff that you don't think you would have gotten otherwise? Well, just the FLIR alone, again, the, the typical UFO investigators don't even have one FLIR, <laughs> you know? Right. We had, you know, each camera is about $50,000. So, so, so that was one thing that we had. And the, having eight of them allowed us to cover the entire sky, basically. So, and also run everything 24-7 over five days. So that was a huge advantage. And, yes. you know, and the other things that we detected, I think these, these specific data correlations are still being investigated because we ended up, Whitley, like with hundreds of, hundreds of hours. So imagine you saw how much equipment there is, there was, and everything is running 24-7. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, one hour of footage is 216,000 frames because we, we look at it frame by frame. Of course, some of the stuff is very obvious. You can see it's, a, oh, it's a bird or something. But when you stumble on something, like you have to, you look at it frame by frame. It's, it's a huge amount of data to go through. Yeah. So, so some of the new cutting edge technology that we had is still being studied how that correlated with something we saw and what it actually did. I see. So it's a, yeah, that's a, an absolutely enormous task that you, and fortunately it will, it's, it is a task that is uh, doable because of computers, because of without, a, without uh, the support of computers to identify imagery and all of those single still images, you would not be able to, to really get anywhere with it. Um, Michio Kaku says a, makes a trenchant comment at one point in the film saying that the, we need to reach the level of it, it, this. I'm not, I'm paraphrasing him or even worse <laughs> remembering him, but not very clearly, but anyway, I'm trying folks. Uh, he says that we have to get this to a point where the reality is undeniable scientifically. Now, when you take together the videos that has already been released by the government and what you did, because what you did takes another step, it seems fairly evident that someone was there for you. In other words, it wasn't, it, it would seem that there was a reaction, that this was a communication, a two-way communication. And that is extremely new. And the other side of that communication is objects that can be proved to be anomalous. So is science going to just sit on its hands still because they've always been wrong about this and now they have to change course? What, yeah. will, what do you think will happen culturally in science? 
Yeah, I don't I don't think they're going to be able to ignore this. I mean, those who really want to ignore it, they're going to ignore it no matter what you do. But we already have scientists asking us questions. Okay, can you give me more detail on this and more detail? So now don't forget, there is so much scientific data, uh, I mean, detail that we can put in a film. After all, this is a film. It's not a PowerPoint presentation in a, you know, in a scientific conference. So we put as my, also we want the average person to not be lost, you know, with the science. So we showed enough evidence of the anomaly with some of the scientific explanation, but there's more detail. So we already are getting uh, uh, questions from scientists saying, yes, but can you tell us more? They're not saying it's, it's CGI. They're not saying, because we have real legitimate scientists on the team. These guys aren't going to put their careers um, in jeopardy because of a film. You know, in fact, that was a huge problem we had. So, um, so what I'm saying is that now we already have scientists looking at this, say, this does look anomalous. This does look very intriguing. Give us the details on the field of view on this and what was the angle blah, blah, blah. So there's definitely some intrigue that's starting to happen. Now the film just got released two days ago. So, you know, it's just the beginning, but I guarantee there's going to be a lot of questions, especially that our scientists are going to write the paper, which again is historical in itself. Right. And so I don't think they're going to be able to dismiss it. Now, you and I can agree that there's communication and this and that, but I think that's going to be a huge stretch for them. But where they're not going to be able to uh, to refute is that this is an anomalous event. That's the all-important thing because it'll take time to, you know, eventually someone will come sniffing along and say, hmm, what more can we learn from this? And then they will be looking at the object that was strangely cold and at the two cameras where one one had the image and the other couldn't pick it up and they'll get there because that's the that's the that's the path. In other words, a, a path has been laid down. They're just at the beginning of the path. The beginning of the path is noticing the path, and that's where they are. And that's what that paper is going to help them do, is to notice that there is this path here. And it's a many-forked path, the, the great path of science. And um, uh, where we will go with it, nobody knows. And probably just as well that they don't, because it's going to be a very exciting journey. Now, I would like to get on to another subject with you. I have regretted the fact that I have no ability to communicate with you outside of these moments, and this is it. Uh, I don't have, uh, I, and you're, there are people between you and me in any case. Um, the close encounter community always wonders, what do these things have to do with us? And how would we be studied? And there are answers to the second question, not the first. I'm going to talk about, and just give me a moment to ex it, talk precisely about how the close encounter experience can be brought into a, a, a scientific focus. It can be brought into a scientific focus 
by using functional MRI scanning <laughs> to analyze brain function during the narration of close encounter memories. <laughs> and the, the reason is that the brain assembles its production from imagined material differently Correct. from the way it assembles its production from material that it perceived as a physical event. You get enough, eno enough of these people together and uh, or interview enough of them under fMRI scans and have them repeat their narrative, eventually you will find a baseline that's factual. That could happen and could be done. Then we would know the factual basis of this experience. All of that said, is there... Do you sense that there's any connection between these objects and close encounters? I don't know if you do. Uh, or did you have any in indication? Did they seem to want to interact with you in any way? Yeah, so I, I just want to make a comment on the, what you said earlier. Actually, there are people studying with fMRI uh, and also other way of uh, measuring the brain waves. Um, the the difference between recalling a real experiment and imagining things. So there are studies being done and there are brains being scanned. And in fact, I mean, some groups, they haven't published anything officially, but they have been, uh, they have located an area in the brain that seems to be very concentrated when a person is talking about uh, an actual encounter. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, so it's going in that direction for sure. Um, but what would be fascinating is uh, also to correlate that, that that was one idea that I was thinking about is to have some sort of measuring device. There's different ways we can go about it while you're having, <laughs> not, not just uh, remembering something that yeah. happened, but yeah. And so, so that's, that's something I'm investigating as well. Uh, because I definitely agree there is a connection. I had an experience, uh, recently, actually. I mean, I, all my life, I had those experiences, but one particular experience, um, was, um, there, I, I, I was at my house and all of a sudden I went outside and there's these three balls of light bouncing off of each other. And so, of course, my reaction was, is that it? Is that it? Yeah. Well, I'm just going to communicate. So I said, is that, if that's a you, if there's intelligence behind this, um, you know, I could sense it, but I wanted that validation. I said, you know, do something. So all of a sudden, the three balls become four, and then they become six, then they become eight. And then I was like, okay, cool. So you can hear me. Great. So then I said, well, follow me. So I started walking, you know, about half a mile, like in one direction. And they were like hovering, you know, above me in this one direction. Then I changed direction and I go in another direction. Same thing. They're like following me. I mean, what is that? Did I just make it up? Did I make this happen? I mean, if I did, I'd be like a super powerful person. I'd be like, uh, you know, superhuman for sure. But it was definitely communication. There was definite contact. Plus, I mean, I could feel it and see it and hear it. But, you know, this is physical evidence. 
that this was happening. So now to answer the rest of your question, what do they want with us? I think some of them don't want anything. Some of them, it's like space tourism, you know, just like we would go to a different country just to check things out. You know, they're exploring space in this way. Uh, they don't really care. That's one part. Another part are very much, very much integrated with our story. And they want us to wake up. They want us to, to they, giving us clues to know what to do next to keep bringing out the truth, just like what we did in this film. The clues are ridiculous. Come on, you know? So that triggered me to, to make a film for people to see. For you, it's going to be another experience that's so obvious. You know what I mean? So they're gradually giving us more and more clues and tools to work with to bring about the truth of reality itself. To find that truth is going to be an enormous human undertaking. It will be the greatest act of the human mind in history uh, to get to the point where we are uh, able to interact with this in a way that is meaningful and useful to us. We're not there yet. Uh, you have, on the one hand, um, a lot of, a, a growing amount of, of, of in, a number of indications that there is somebody here. On the other hand, you have the very confused uh, uh, close encounter narrative, uh, which when I and, and my wife collected thousands of letters that we received after communion was published. And these letters were not all about abduction experiences, repeating the story in communion. It re revealed a vast array of yeah. different types of experience. And now they're all collected at Rice University. So the archive there you is go. there. Yeah. The, and that archive is being studied by academics and beginning to be studied by academics. And so there's progress being made there, but I still believe that there are, that the bodies of the close encounter witnesses are an important frontier and how to, uh, how to address that frontier. Like I have an implant in my ear that, that works and I use all the time as an, a research tool. What is it? We tried to get it out one time and it escaped and got, it's obviously a, a functional device. It go, went down into my earlobe and then went back up into my ear after the, uh, into the top of my ear after the doctor quit, gave up. So there's that. And I'm not the only one like that. There's lots of people like that. I think the people are the next step, maybe for you. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's exactly what you just said. It's for us to use these clues and tools to keep bringing out the truth from different angles, any which way we can. Uh, yeah, and yeah, we yeah. are doing it. So, I th and I think this is more truthful than the government coming out and telling us this, telling us that, which would be fantastic. But because it's the government, because there's agendas, because it's politics, it's also going to trigger a lot of fear, confusion. Are they lying to us? Are they hiding something? What's the agenda here? So they, they, they never will tell you the whole story because they are constrained by the classification system to limit and edit everything they say, even 
in spite of the fact that the door may be as open as it can be, but you're not, you're right out there. This has got to come from the people, Caroline, and you've been touched, seriously touched by all those little orb experiences and so, so forth. You're being called and you're responding to the call. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I feel like I have to. Like otherwise, sure. what am I doing? And and I feel like it's really an organic experience for me that start. I, I'm speaking my truth. I'm not copying, or you know, I'm not I'm not like outside myself looking for stories to tell. So that makes a big difference. It feels it's an extension of who I am and what I'm here to do. It's it's that part makes it actually easy. What's not easy is you know the world, (laughs) but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you're here to live your life, to follow your truth, follow your passion, no matter what it takes. doesn't matter the outcome. Well, exactly. Uh, Years ago, one of the visitors said to me, we will come from within you. And I thought, oh God, (laughs) (laughs) I know what it means now. It means this. This is coming from within us. This exactly. is what it's about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Of course they want that. Back in the uh back in 1977, uh DBH Kuiper and Mark Morris, two astrophysicists, uh, opined in Science magazine uh that the only reason someone would come here from another world because of all of their vast knowledge that they would already possess would be to find the new and you find the new in us. We're what's new here. I can assure you that they've seen trees and and animals <laughs> and so forth of all kinds before, uh, but they haven't seen what's in here before. And this would also be why they are so careful to avoid cultural colonization, which is what comes when when the the, the fancy British ship steams into the harbor on the primitive little island and begins to sell them pots and pans and knives. And all of a sudden, all of their gods fall asleep in their, in, in their, in their hearts and their journey ends. Who is here is trying very hard to not cause our journey to end mm. in the face of their superior abilities and technology. They are drawing us carefully forward, and you're the perfect person for it because you're so curious, and you do it so well, and you won't quit. That's very no. important. No. You will not quit. I love it. It's great. A tear in the sky, folks, is the just the, it's a, as I say, it's a moment in history because finally a, a show has been created that demonstrates to a level of scientific proof that these objects are there. These objects are there. Now, what is your best instinct as to what is what they are? Yeah, and I get that. Uh... And, and you're guessing now. We understand you're not, you're, you know, we're allowing you to, to, be a science fiction author for a minute and just guess. Um, again, I, I think it's multiple of things, you know, multiple things, you know, it's yeah. not one thing. 
So, so some of the objects, some of the, the uh, drone-like objects, uh, I believe, are human-made. And so they, they look like, you know, they're, they're doing crazy stuff, but all types of drones could be doing, like there's technology, drone technology that it's not stuff you buy off the shelf. I mean, these things can fly for hours and hours and do all sorts of strange maneuvers and things like that. And so well, Drummond think, makes a drone that flies for 18 hours on electric on electricity. That's right. awesome. You have to know they've got some very special batteries that the public does not have. Exactly, exactly. And so and they fly very high and they could swarm and you know put a bunch of those and it could look like hey, you know, there's something. So so the drone type I feel are um that like human technology uh and uh but like i said some of the half organic ones are the ones that seem to have some sort of communication uh like i was just describing um i feel it's extraterrestrial when you say organic what do you mean by that word well, so, sometimes, uh, you, you're communicating with a, with a, with a being, with a light. Be like, again, it's one of those things. Can I prove it? How do I prove it? Like you have to be inside my brain, inside my consciousness to, to get that part. But I am communicating. You are communicating. You hear a communication back. You see the communication. You say, Hey, follow me this way. They follow you that way. How does that work? Did, did I make the object? I mean, that's crazy. Which is like for a scientist, which is a better hypothesis that if, if I am communicating with an invisible thing other than the orbs, right? Because the orbs are visible to them, but they can't see the beings behind it. Right. So which is more digestible, you know, um, that I could be telepath, we could be telepathically communicating. Or that I have so much power that I made the whole thing up and I'm making those lights, uh, those lights appear and do whatever I want it to do. <laughs> like, what's going to baffle the scientists more? That's insane. Plus, there was a neighbor, actually. And I was like, do you see these these things? And she was like, yeah, that's cool. Like, she didn't even like register that how could this be or whatever? <laughs> but I mean, like there are other people watching, you know? So that's what I'm saying. Like, like science is going to have, I mean, they really, really are going to have to take a big leap <laughs> to get to what's really going on. And, and so to, that's, yeah. To see, to see the bigger picture exactly. reminds me of uh, Monty Python's life of Brian, the moment when the heir to the, castle his father his says takes him to a window and says all this will be yours and he replies what the curtains <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. it's beyond the curtains folks they got to open the curtains and look out out the window and see what's there carolyn as always it has been a great pleasure being with you can you tell us about Anything about your next adventure? And I know there must be one in the, in the, in the offing. Well, because of what we found and, you know, recorded in this last film, I mean, there's got to be the next one connected to what we did. Plus, we're trying to make it scientific. So repeatable. We want repeatable results. So uh, I'm going to build on what we've captured, but also take it even to another 
level yet. So uh, I'm already uh, in the works on that. And so I'll be talking to you more about it as well. So yeah, but for now, focusing on a tear in the sky, people need to see this. Like you're saying, it's historic. It is historic. That is exactly what it is, folks. It is historic. What has been done here is really very straightforward. They have taken highly advanced scientific instruments, scientists with excellent credentials out into the night and detected UFOs without question at a very excellent and high level of scientific finish. It has been done. They are here. Who are they? That's the next question. And Caroline is going to answer it for us. If anybody can, Carolyn Corey, a tear in the sky. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on Dreamland. As always, I'm inspired. It was a wonderful show. You're amazing too. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.